and we're live with our 121st episode of Absolute Absec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my lovely co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. Uh, we are super excited to have Logi Kill back with us. Stefan is a good friend. He's been on the podcast multiple times. He, he's even helped me or helped us co-host at some point, right? It's yeah. been a little while. Yeah. But whatever. Yeah. <laughs> we, we always have something fun to talk about when when Logi comes on. Um, we don't really have a lot of announcements at this point um i did want to bring up and promote cactus con again it's going on in just a couple of days here uh go to cactuscon.com to check out the 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 lineup it's all virtual this year andrew and the team um decided again with covid like everybody else to go virtual but there's a couple of good days of really technical talks that you should check out um and then you should go next year when it's actually in person um Outside of that, uh, what else was I thinking of? Oh, next week we're going to have Brian Glass, Professor Glass on to talk OWASP Top 10 after the discussion that Ken and I had last week on the Wallarm blog post. Um, Brian reached out and it's actually like the, the blog post itself. I did want to address this a little bit, Ken, before we we moved on and jumped onto some of that with, with Logi. Um, you and I, when we were looking at that blog post, thought it was coming from one of the organizers of the top 10 project at OWASP and it wasn't right. It was actually analysis that was done by Wallarm on what they thought the top 10 should be coming up. So it should be an interesting dis discussion with Brian as he helps lead up the data gathering for the OWASP top 10. And um, they have lots of discussions and he has lots of opinions about it as well, which is good. So that'll be next week. Um, yeah. I think that's everything from, for me, I mean, unless Logi, you want to jump in onto the top 10 and how it's an awareness doc and not like an actual like statistical analysis, but. Well, so it, in, interestingly, mo most people don't know, but Brian and I have been involved with uh, OWASP top 10 since like 2013. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I helped with, with 2013. Um, I helped Brian crunch the stuff for 2017, just like as a sounding board. Brian did a lot of the work and he's an absolute unsung hero for, for the work that he's done for OWASP. Um, but it, it's been interesting to see, like, yes, it's not a statistical sounding board. It's not, uh, it, you know, it's more statistically driven rather than like pure statistics. Obviously, it's not a deeper. It's not something like that uh, because it's, it's an aggregate. There's no ontology. There's no like... Uh, direct list of things that people are putting together. Um, but Brian really has brought a lot of uh, professionalism and a lot of analysis to it um, versus when it, when we were first getting involved and Brian was first working on stuff and I was, I was first being a jerk about it. Um, you know, it was very much like Dave Wickers and a few people had, like sort of pulled together some stuff and it looked good and it worked well. And, you know, we could teach classes off of it and, and that was it, you know, whereas yeah. Brian really taking it far from there. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and that was it. Like we were all kind of involved at some point on the 2017 one when he really mm -hmm. stepped in and actually did data analysis on, okay, this, these are the vulnerabilities that people are reporting to us. Right. Right. And then there's the, there's the couple that they actually did a, a call for, for for vulnerabilities, basically, like what the industry thinks is up and coming, as opposed to 
hey, it's just all based on these statistics from these four companies, right? Which was what the initial top 10 for 2017 looked like, like the proposal, which everybody got up in arms about. So yeah, definitely Brian brings a good discipline to a lot of things that he does. Everything. Uh, yeah, I, I know that's one of the reasons that, I, you know, we all enjoy working with him as he's a, I mean, he's he's the adult that makes sure that it all happens, right? Well, Br- Brian and I work together really well because, uh, like, I am very frenetic and I have a lot of experience with a lot of different things. But but Brian is very good at like visualizing things, breaking things down, explaining them to other people. Whereas I am am very good at like finding the problems and relaying them back to customers. Brian is very good about explaining the bigger picture, seeing how it ties into things, seeing how it like this is how your architecture is rendered, et cetera. So I, I obviously always love working with Brian. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, I, that definitely shows, right. I know we'll talk to him next week about the OWASP SAM project we as well. Brian this week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're, we're just going to talk about Brian Glass. Not have him on. <laughs> That'll be next week. We'll just like <laughs> sing his praises, but yeah, like the OWASP SAM project, like you, you talk about stepping back and actually looking at maturity of a program yeah. um, and putting together a methodology for doing that. Right. That, you know, the BSIM stuff, but improving that over time is very well thought out. So, well, Brian and I worked on, on some of those sorts of things at a, uh, and a, a government entity that we worked at together as well. Uh, so it was, it's, it's very interesting to see, uh, not only how, uh, Brian has, has described these things in the public domain, but also seeing how Brian has matured his own maturity models, uh, over mm-hmm. time, you know, over the like decade that we've been working together. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's very interesting to see. And, and you're right. He brings a, a certain discipline and a certain class to things that the, the rest of us barbarians just don't have. <laughs> have yeah. Well, I get too distracted. I'll, you know, I'll be honest, right? Like that's the whole reason I have checklists. It's because if I don't have them, then I don't get everything done that I need to on an assessment. Because I, you know, Ken and I talk about this at the course all the time is squirrel, right? Like, you know, hey, I'm like, this looks like it could be vulnerable to SQL injection. And all of a sudden you spent like two days tracking down something that ultimately wasn't because of some framework nuance, right? So uh, yeah, it's it having people around like that, like Brian is a big help to the rest of us to make sure that we, yeah, that we do what needs to be done. The the person that I actually learned to appreciate checklists from was someone that Brian and I worked together, J.R. Myers. Uh, he's at uh, Denim right now. And uh, he had like this master one note that he would have a giant checklist of things that he expected to check. And, and uh, it really showed me that you, you can still look for the weird vulnerabilities. You can still try to find that stuff, but you can, you can sort of gloss over the simple stuff first. Yeah. Like, oh, there, there's no trivial SQL injection. There's no trivial XSS and these sorts of things. All right, I checked that off. Now I can deep dive and come back and look at those sorts of things and actually process like, you know, the, the, the sort of weirder vulnerabilities or the sort of weirder things that you, you would be looking for, you know? Yeah. So. Yep. Yep. So, uh, I mean, along those lines, Stefan, right? Like what is it that you can, that you use as your baseline nowadays then? Right? Like what, I mean, I know you've got your, like, I'm sure you have your own whatever GitHub instance that has like a list of this is what I need to look at. But um, do, are there any resources out there that you point people at if they're asking you? 
So like very frequently, if you've taken any of the Go classes that I teach, if you've, if you've seen the, the Go class, like the Go, vulnerable Go code, or if you've seen the Kubernetes assessment or whatnot, um, it, a lot of it is just based off of, off of those sorts of things. I, I think what's changed for me over time is I've moved much more towards a programming language theoretic approach to a lot of the security I do. Um, you know, I, I obviously fit into that LangSec circle. Um, mm-hmm. I, I enjoy LangSec. I enjoy that sort of like semantic-based security and whatnot. Um, so I think over time, I've, I've moved way more towards that model. Like, wh- what are the language features that cause this, this thing to exist? How do we note these sort of patterns? How do we note this, you know, heuristic or this, uh, this you know, overarching vulnerable pattern here? Um, and so, yeah, there's there's things that I do for for Go code bases that are very specific to Go, um, and and generally too, I I take some of the baselines that I expect, like file system interactions, you know, uh, cryptography interactions, those sorts of things, but I like to see them in a language theoretic uh, like slant. I want to look at things as they are reified in Go or as they're reified in in uh, JavaScript or Java or those sorts of things. Because certain classes of vulnerabilities just won't be the exact same or even the same in in other languages. Yeah. You know? So well and, uh, you know and and speaking to this, Ken specifically, right? Like as far as the framework goes, the check kind of the checklist that we have for like teaching people how to do code review, it becomes so high level, right? It's, and and I think that's what you're, you're, you're talking to Stefan is it's like, Hey, yeah, we're going to talk about authentication, but depending on the application, depending on the code authentication in, you know, C looks a lot different than authentication in a Node.js, like an express JS project, right? It just does. Um, Also your own authentication versus your like, library-based authentication or single sign-on based, you know, you have different, like, yeah, well, concerns. I, I think the, the problem is, is that we, you know, obviously I, I was a Lisp programmer for many years. So what I'm about to say is going to be painfully Lispy, but every, every program that you have is effectively some sort of domain specific language that you, you are creating, even if it's a bunch of function calls that you call every single time that you do authentication, that forms a DSL uh, over the domain of all the functions that you could be calling here. And you can start to analyze your program flows. You can start to analyze your, your systems in this sort of like DSL specific way, right? And, and Seth, you and I have talked about this before. Like, do, do programmers actually even need Turing complete programming languages? No, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> but we, we can get into that another time. But, you know, I, I do think that we, we don't really take this holistic view of our, of our programs and look at them as like, these are the things, we, these are the patterns we keep doing over and over again. We, we kind of still play whack-a-mole and look at things like, oh, we're looking at this route and this route's missing this thing. Where it's like, well, what's the patterns it should be? What is the DSL that we've described for these sorts of things, et cetera? You know, so. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it. A lot of that comes from experience, right? Like when you've looked at so much code, that's that. Like we, I don't know. I, I kind of go back to the course again. Again, it, we start to think about patterns and you know DSL as opposed to you know, hey, what is it that we're trying to do with this specific library or like how is this actually implemented um there's authentication patterns and authorization patterns but 
applying that, I don't, it, it's hard to teach, right? That, that, that's what I'm getting to, right? Is mm-hmm. um, it's very easy to be like, hey, this is what SQL injection looks like in a you know Flask project. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's pretty easy to to identify what that is, as opposed to what is it that you're trying to solve? What is it you're trying to do? What is the pattern? What should that pattern look like? And where does it look like that it's good versus bad? And then identifying that. It, and that was the other question I was going to ask you. If you started to use or um, do you use something like SEMGREP for finding those sorts of patterns? Or is it still, you know, a one-off regex that you're, you're playing with? These two fists. No, I mean, uh, yeah. first of all, do you ever think Steph, 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 Stefan? Sorry, I'll call you Stefan. Stefan. Uh, Stefan, Stefan. Ishvan. That's it. Ishvan. Ishvan. Yeah. Okay, Ishvan. I was going to say, do you think, do you think Logi over here has ever uh, relied on just regex? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just built a simple regex. I don't see that being you. I, I am, a, I am a filthy rip grep user for a lot of things. I use rip grep and globs for a lot to get started, but I, I, uh, I, I do think that, so like Trail of Bits uses SEMGREP, obviously uh, GitHub has uh, CodeQL, like there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of things there. Um, so I think SEMGREP is fairly interesting. The other thing that R2C who makes SEMGREP uh, has that I thought was fascinating was there's a library many years ago that, that Facebook wrote called PFFF. And um, it, was yeah. a, it was like a, abstract uh, library for doing ana- like static analysis on top of uh, on top of uh, like other languages. It was written in OCaml and things like, did I drop? No. Oh, no, yeah. sorry. No, you're still on. You, like, <laughs> Try to get you, that thing off your face, the banner off your face. Sorry. Yeah. And then it, it, uh, then it was just off. me talking, um, but it was, it was written in OCaml. It, it basically allowed you to do analysis, uh, like write an analysis once and then have it run a, against multiple languages as long as the, an, an AST was representable there. And RTC has uh, revived PFFF um, as part of their processes there too. So it's, it's interesting to see these sorts of things becoming live again as well, you know? Um, Microsoft obviously has a lot of really interesting things like, uh, wrestler, right. They have the, the, uh, rest API fuzzer that they're, they're working on, but Patrice, uh, go to Freud. I think that's how you pronounce his name has a whole bunch of stuff that he's, he's brought forward like dart and sage and things like that. Um, there's just I, like, I think that the space is really set to explode, uh, there with a lot of tools. It's, it's just, it's just a matter of time. Yeah. I mean, I've always felt like there's been a disconnect with kind of the general security consulting that's gone on um, across the board. Like it's very, I, I mean, I, I like at this point too, you're doing like red team activities, right? I know that, you know, like, or you're moving into that space um, or getting back into it, whatever. Okay. So you're going to be doing red teaming, but the, the guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the uh, like that, like security consulting space has never lined up very well with what we do on the language side of things, looking for vulnerabilities. Um, yes, there's some crossover. We'll find a vulnerability. Somebody will write an exploit and then the red team guys take advantage of it. Or when you're doing web app testing, you're looking for specific patterns. Um, you find SQL injection, right? But it, like trying to marry those two has is a difficult problem. Because those theoretical vulnerabilities that show up in code don't always have an exploit that goes along with them. And at times it's it's one of those, like I've, 
I don't know how many times you've written a vulnerability that's like, hey, this is bad and could be exploited under certain conditions. And then it never gets fixed because those conditions don't exist right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and even companies accepting risk, right? Like it's, oh, we're using this library that has this CVE that somebody found on the Langsec side of things, but it takes these conditions to exist. So we're just going to keep using it because it's not a problem until it is. Right? Risk, risk well, accepted. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. There was a paper uh, many years ago called Automatic Exploit Generation. Uh, it's a mm-hmm. symbolic execution paper. Basically, they, they wrote a symbolic executor that like, generates exploits for a certain class of vulnerability. Um, and super fascinating paper, super interesting stuff, um, similar to the, the Splint paper. Like Most people don't know Splint is a static analyzer for C, but it actually has an abstract interpreter built into it. And it can do all like it can do a lot of stuff if you wanted to, but we weren't using it. <laughs> like yeah. no no one uses it for that. So we're 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 at a place where I think these things can become normalized and we can start to use them much more frequently. Um, but it's also interesting too. Like if you look at what Project Zero does, uh, m- most of Project Zero's bugs are still manual finds. Yeah, I think. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was like the vast majority were manual. And then some class of them were uh, like fuzzing. And and then there were like a handful that used more exotic techniques from that. And that, that was basically it. You know, most of, most of it was still like two fists and like just knowing what you're doing. So. Yep. By the way, have we mentioned what step, what, what you're doing now? No, 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 we we just jumped straight in. I'm the I'm the bad guy on the QT. Like we don't we don't drop what I do, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if then you can find know, him online, if, if I was allowed to announce that, we we we, we keep quiet about these sorts of things. I, I do okay. quiet operations. So I'm quite <laughs> professional. <laughs> I'll stay quiet then. <laughs> uh, no, I mean I I do. Uh, I'm, I'm moving back into an adversary space, uh, which is, is fairly interesting to me. Um, I'll be, I'll be working with, with, uh, with Ken, uh, and, uh, a few other friends over at GitHub a little bit, uh, doing some red teaming stuff. Um, and, uh, it, it'll be interesting to, to see what that space looks like, you know, um, I'll still be, when you I'll, started. Yeah, I'll still be doing some like research fellowy stuff with Trail of Bits as well, which is nice, um, you know, because I can keep my foot in some there. Um, but I, yeah, I like, I like the idea of being adversary sim, at least, you know, seeing where it goes, you know, so it's fun. It'll be fun. It's very interesting to see, uh, but doing, doing op four, doing, doing long-term red team engagements and whatnot is, is a fairly interesting space. So I'm just happy to be working with you again, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it'll be fun. Um, it, it's it's a very interesting space, and and uh, I like I like doing. Uh, I've always liked adversary simulation, but I, I do think I can bring a lot of the interesting parts of what um, I know to to it as well, and see what capabilities we can expand in general. So it'll be fun, you know. Get a few more tattoos out of it and whatnot, and we'll take it from there too. So. <laughs> yeah, didn't you get some new ones? Yeah, I, I got uh, I got eight the other day. I got eight, eight at once. <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. That's not some new ones. <laughs> yeah, some new ones. You got eight. Ta- How many hours did that take? It was like six and a half hours of tattooing. So that's that's like not as bad as I thought it would have been. So yeah, must I mean, be small you, you, tattoos. Yeah, I have you know I, yeah. I we have a bunch of new more visible ones as well. So you oh know, my that's amazing. 
Yeah. That's awesome. I'm not, uh, I'm not brave enough to show all of them on camera since some of them require like, you know, some of them are like very low on my legs and whatnot. <laughs> we can go, we'll go whoa, whoa, whoa. You know? oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I don't want to have to go back through and like blur things. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Why? It's funny how Logicals episodes always get the E, but this one might get like, you know, an, an X rating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to like, yeah. <laughs> We're just going to blur out the bottom half of the screen on this one. <laughs> no one should ever say this podcast is for a mature audience. <laughs> She's the immature audience uh, yeah, yeah. resignator. Yeah, there you go. But yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in this space, though, and there's a lot of a lot of interesting breaks. But I do think it's it's fascinating too with what we were what we were thinking about talking about today. Like, I I suspect Tab has found that that uh, libgcrypt vuln manually. I mean, I didn't look through the the whole process there, but I suspect that was a very manual uh, attack there. You know. well, yeah, let's let's yeah, let's jump into that really quick though. As far as the you know what it, what that actually was, um, like how much have you looked into that PGP that vulnerability and what, what's going on there? So I I generally recommend clients avoid GPG unless they like absolutely need to. There's there's a lot of like a lot of operational security things that you can just get wrong with with GPG. There's a lot of crypto modes that you can you can uh, you know mess up. Uh, when you use it, it's it's not easy to use. It's not super friendly. There's been tons of attacks around it. Um, but this one was fairly interesting. It's like a, a heap-based buffer overflow and some of the block sizing for it. So it's like attacking right at the direct the direct level of, of uh, GPG itself, right? This is not uh, this is not side channel attacks against it. This is not the the uh, like breaking something that integrates with GPG. It's a direct attack on on libgcrypt itself. So why you're decrypting something? Right, right. Which is which as an adversary, that is that's exactly the time that you'd want to do it. Right, like you'd want something that can uh, you can attack, weaponize from there, um, and you could send to an unsuspecting. Uh, third party that maybe has a public GPG key, such as like a bug bounty team or, or some incident responders or those sorts of things. Um, and, uh, you know, you can, it, it would be very interesting to be able to move from there if you could weaponize that exploit. It's, it's already been fixed. There's already a new version you should upgrade if you use, uh, if you were using that, that version. And if I recall correctly, it was only used in specific instances of, of like bleeding edge Ubuntu and, and uh, Arch. But it 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 did have very interesting impact there because of of what it is and how it exploits GPG. Yeah, I I, I, I did want to go back to the like what you said initially that you felt like it was manual, right? Like it uh, the the way that we find these bugs. Um, and and I know you and I have talked a lot about automation and and fuzzing. You know, mm-hmm. Like we should probably talk some more about it because it uh, like it, it becomes really interesting. Um, and even some of those bugs that we've found on projects, you know, using fuzz techniques and how that actually, yeah. But anyway, uh, like why do you feel, or why do you, why do you think that that's the, the case with this? So in general, like, why do you think that we as an industry are so tied to, uh, like the manual techniques as opposed to using automation for finding these bugs? I mean, I know that, um, 
Yeah, because, well, yeah, you mentioned Project Zero, but I know that some teams rely pretty heavily you know, at Trail of Bits when you were there. I know you guys were using some automated techniques to to find and, you know, identify possible vulnerabilities. So what is it about manual that we're focusing on so much rather than going to the automated route? I, I think we haven't really gotten there, right? So Trail of Bits has a number of tools that help in certain spaces uh, for, for fuzzing. And, and folks like Microsoft Research have done a lot of really interesting work in that space, right? With Dart and Sage and those sorts of tools. Yeah. Um, but it, when you're looking at it from that perspective, right? When you're, when you're trying to do abstract interpretation, when you're trying to do uh, symbolic execution for those sorts of things, it really becomes a program analysis problem right? Okay. You're not just, you're trying to understand the flow of a program. You're understand, trying to understand the flow of the system. And then you're trying to also simultaneously find what it should be doing versus what you're able to make it do, right? And you're trying to derive a lot of information based on just generating things randomly or, or generating things from a specific set of, of values. And it's, it's a non-trivial ask. I know Cloudflare is using uh, Mayhem uh, from For All Secure quite heavily. It's a cyber reasoning system. Uh, it's very interesting stuff in there. But it's it's a non-trivial ask to ask teams to like, hey, don't just break software. Don't just find vulnerabilities, but start to do program analysis. And oh yeah, by the way, also understand uh, what your program should be doing, right? Like you can't even ask devs, not, not a knock against devs, but you can't ask devs like, what is this thing supposed to do, right? Mm -hmm. Like very yeah. often they don't know at all. They just, they know what they coded. They don't necessarily know what it's supposed to do. It's a very different ask. You'd so have that's to start categorizing. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Yeah. No, start I was just going to say you kind of have to categorize. Like if you, if you think about it, there's so like, cause you mentioned program analysis and like, what is the app supposed to do? And one of the reasons I think Breakbin is so successful is that Rails app applications are so stringent and exactly how they're, mm -hmm. they're, how they're like, how it's made up. Uh, and then also like um, how the flow goes mm -hmm. through, you know, it's, it's a very static and that doesn't change. Like we know where your routes are. We know once those are defined, it's going to go to these places specifically. Then those places are going to call these places in these ways. And it's very easy to like understand the web app uh, flow. That's one category. There's another category of, okay, what does it actually do though from like a business standpoint? Mm -hmm. What shouldn't it do from a business standpoint is another category. And then like, you break it down into like, what's the language it's built on? That's another category. Mm -hmm. And by the time you get through like all these categories, the way you'd have to customize a tool in order for it to do what a human can do manually, you might as well just done it manually at this point. There's nothing that has like, I've seen that's ever sped up that end-to-end -end process. The close, like again, Breakman's been successful, very successful in one category, but like how many times have like, well, I, I'll just say I, I've done a lot of Rails analysis, like Rails application analysis, and Bregman's great for hitting some of the very like, you know, the things that are, you should find, they're kind of low hanging fruit, they're kind of checklist items, cool. But like, then there's those other categories and that becomes, again, like even with Bregman's assistance, you've got this whole other set of things that you have to do. So it's like, yeah, that, I guess that's my point is that there's so many categories to tap into that by the time you like, automate all that stuff you've put so much time into customizing your tooling that it's like what's the point of all that so well, well yeah 
Oh, I, I was going to say, like, so if you look at Manticore, right, like just to, to pick on one that I know the code base for, like if you look at Manticore, there's a whole bunch of strategies in there or MythX. MythX is made by uh, consensus diligence, uh, well, consensus, not consensus diligence. Uh, like there are all sorts of scenarios that it, it can look for. And then it has heuristics to see which states it should prune and which states it should keep, et cetera. Like someone literally has to sit down and write those sorts of things. And, and the, the mayhem folks have, have done a lot of work at understanding these sorts of things and coming up with heuristics. And then the, the Cloudflare folks do a lot of other things on top of that to see how cyber reasoning, like basically you are reasoning about your program when you're doing these sorts of things. You're sitting down and thinking about what your program should do versus what it is doing and then generating stuff that makes it do one or the other. Right. So I'm not, and, and I want to be clear, I'm not saying this is impossible. I am saying right now with the current tooling that exists, what you mm -hmm. need to do to it to make any of this work as well as manual analysis would be, it might as well go back to manual analysis just with what we currently have. That's all I'm saying. Right. No, no. But what I mean is like, there's, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Like, like I think people want a magic tool that you, you can just point at things. And it's like, no, there's a lot of person hours writing up scenarios, writing up strategies, writing up tooling for these sorts of things. And unless there's some sort of company or group behind it, honestly, like, uh, or unless there's some very passionate uh, open source maintainers who are willing to do it regardless of, of what uh, is occurring in their own lives, like it's not, it's not going to just magic up. It, it takes yeah. time and effort to come up with that, which maybe you should focus on doing manually if you're yeah. in a company, you know, like, well, so. and like, also, you know, we're talking about in the context of like, okay, maybe from a consultant view where you get like a, an app and then it con connects to some places and whatever you do your assessment and then you move on. But like, you know, you, you, you've seen GitHub, uh, in the, in a real production, um, in a company that has many, many like web-based properties, um, at, with, you know, a very large scale user base. Like no app that you're looking at is like, okay, here's my app. Let me do my assessment, blah, 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 blah. Like that's, I think where the, the whole like threat modeling and risk assessment kind of stuff comes into play is because you're talking about like you and I have already seen and you've only been there like a week <laughs> and you've already seen that these things connect out to so many places and there's so many considerations and so many places where security hardening has to happen that isn't just in the app that it's like, it's not a clean cut, like here's an app and we do an assessment. It's like a, everything is tangled together and we have to think about where in the, these various bits that, that what security issues could arise beyond just the regular web app security type stuff we think of. So, well, I mean, uh, this is something Seth and I have talked about a lot too. Like even like Seth has Sputter, uh, which yeah. is basically a, like a, a generative fuzzer, like that knows some things about the the character encodings that you have going on. And even with that, it's like we know roughly what we should be accepting. Sort of, maybe we. There's a whole bunch of ed cases, you know, and we we find things even even at that level, like still tactical level. Um, yep. and still find it. And then of course, when you get to the, to the intra system level, when you get to the large level, you're going to end up with all sorts of breaks and all sorts of problems there, you know? So, yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, the reason I asked the question is cause I like, I hearken back to my like college days doing like 
a course on software testing, right? And mm -hmm. talking about QA testing and automation and like proving whether and like just a single function is doing what you expect it to do and nothing else. And that the problem is super difficult. And based on like the fuzz set that you're using, uh, like it could be fine or it could break everything. Um, and so I, like, I, I just have a hard time, like as a, as a developer coming into it, <laughs> thinking, crap, I see so much code that just doesn't have any test cases written that just doesn't think about anything other than, Hey, this is the one case that has to work for me to deploy this application rather than the, the, the flip side where crap, I need to make sure that nothing else works besides what I expected. Right. Well, I, I think the other thing is too, uh, when you start to look at program analysis, you're, you're going to run into the sort of like uh, Principia Mathematica sort of style of problem, right? Like if you're not familiar with that book or, or volumes, I should say, uh, the first one is like what, four or 500 pages and all it, all it attempts to do is prove that one plus one is equal to two. Like <laughs> there's obviously a lot of work that goes into that sort of thing. But when you're, when you're working with languages, when you're working with systems, there's a lot more proving that goes into it and you end up in a, a, a very different spot. It's very difficult to work with. Um, and I, I think we're not used to systematically thinking about, I, I think what this all belies is that we don't think about any of our systems as formalisms. We think about all of these systems as just systems. They sort of do stuff and then we, we come back to them later. We don't really take a like, here's the actual full spec of, of what this system should be doing. Yeah. Well, and I don't know, because it's code on top of code on top of code as well. Like you start thinking about something running in, you know, AWS, like a Lambda function or, right? Like, yes, you've got like your small bit that you write, but it's dependent on all of this other code that you probably don't have a lot of, you know, visibility into. And uh, so like, but I, I, I always go back to, can I just prove this one function? Can I just prove uh, like that this is doing what I expect it to do? And I, I've never seen a good a good way to do that as as someone that's doing like a web web development or mobile development or IoT. It's all about just that functionality and exactly what you're saying. We come back to it; it does some stuff, um, but I've never really proved that out from a you know, program analysis perspective that it is fully secure. I, I think the, I think there's, there's two things there though. The one that's interesting to me is uh, like what Tendermint has done. They, they have a bunch of invariants throughout their code base. They have some preconditions and post conditions okay. and in, in basically things that should hold regardless. Um, and then their unit tests and their, their fuzz tests basically uh, like exercise these sorts of things. Does this condition always hold as true regardless? So that's sort of like whore logic or, or temporal logic that, that folks do. Uh, is fairly interesting. But on the flip side, like we most of the time don't even have that level of like design by contract uh, knowledge there. If you're not familiar, design by contract is basically this one function should take in, like it requires these conditions, it, it, it ensures these conditions, like at the end, it should be these, and these things hold regardless of how you execute this function. Most people don't even think about it at that level. Like this function accepts these things and does and returns these things. And that's it, you know? Yeah. I mean, good Lord. JML is what, like 22 years old, right? Like the, the first published papers on Java modeling language, which is just 
temporal logic for Java um, is is from like 1999. We've had these sorts of systems. They are industrial grade. I've I've ranted about this before on the podcast, and we we don't use them, right? Like, you know, and so I don't I don't know how uh, we expect testers to use them if we don't if we don't work and design on them for developers to use them either. You know. Yeah. Well, and like, it it always kind of goes back to that education aspect of like what we're training people to do, not necessarily just like you're saying security people, but developers in general, um, there, there's so much pressure to produce, uh, for both of those groups that anything that is, and anything that that goes back to hey it doesn't necessarily affect my bottom line from a business perspective is dropped by the wayside um even if it feels like it's short-sighted or can cause problems in the future it's well we deal with what's in front of us right now and we'll deal with that eventually so so part of me understands that and that and that goes and if your back business is successful that day that eventuality does come and then you're left yeah. with a massive amount of technical debt and a bunch of standards that you now have to adhere to and usually more compliance and now you're like getting third party reports about like oh you're vulnerable to this and that and the other and you've had like 17 pen tests each year and like you know or over the years and you know you haven't fixed anything yeah not a story i've seen or you've seen or <laughs> stefan stefan has seen yeah. before you know I- yeah. I've never seen any of these sorts of things ever. Um, yeah. No, I, but I, I think the the thing is you can't pen test yourself secure. You can you can find a whole bunch of you can find a whole bunch of things. Um, you but you can't fuzz yourself secure either. You can't threat model yourself secure. The only thing you can do is spec yourself secure and then find a whole bunch of bugs in in that. Like yeah. In, you, you run into some you run into some theoretical limits like rice uh, rice's computability uh, theorem and all these sorts of things as you try to go deeper into it right so the, the best you can do is heuristics and and we don't even do those so no no well, we well don't. and that's a good point because you know on the on the heuristics point there are things I was thinking about when you guys were talking about early on uh, in the podcast when you're talking about we can give certain things, but we can't give you, you know, like for instance, when Seth and I give training, we can't give, and if we were doing it for devs, it'd be the same thing. We can't give you all the years of experience, but what we could do when you talk about heuristics is like, okay, Seth, you, me, we all know if I've seen like a bunch of like, uh, I don't know, and or operators, some short circuit statements, and they're all on one line. Well, that's a smell. Like we know for like, there's linting tools we can that's a heuristic you can build upon. There's many little heuristics that just to us who have been doing this and doing code reviews for a long time, like we just know instinctively, Oh, that's probably bad. Like why is there a case statement that this that's like has, you know, 21 entries here? Like what, why is, why is this happening? There's a, there's clearly some issues with programming just like, and you know, to dig in deeper, but that those are things that are hard to just like pass on to somebody is the years and years of the little small things that you pick up on. You kind of just know like that's a rabbit hole that it's worth investigating, like take a note. You mean PMD cyclomatic complexity uh, complaint is not something that you should ignore. It's not, it's not some like meaningless fluff <laughs> and, and it's hard, right? Cause you get something that's like the cyclomatic complexity of this is, is quite large. And then you're like, all right. <laughs> like, so, yeah. I, man, what, what do you do with that? Yeah. You know, like, uh, okay, but also they forgot their authentication checks. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, so. So what's, what's the bigger problem here? Right. 
you know, yeah. or, or what's the more impactful problem? What can I prove during this assessment or what can I prove during this, this code review, you know? Yeah. Um, well, well, and that's, cause that's what it always goes back to is right. Is there a working exploit? Is there a, you know, the vulnerability exists. Can you create a working exploit? Cause if you can, then it's higher impact and the business will pay attention to it. But again, some of those coding problems, like your, your, um, cyclability there, like uh, it, yeah, that's a problem. But to the business right now, that's not the biggest problem. And will right. it ever be? It ends up on the backlog, which goes back to, do the developers really need a Turing complete language, right? Do they need right. to be able to do some of that? Because realistically, they need to be able to take some user input and display something back out, right? Like, like there's a limited set. And like Rails, like these very formal um, frameworks do a good job of limiting some of that. Um, but they still allow that turn completeness behind the scenes uh, is where we get into a lot of these business logic flaws and other things that we have problems with, right? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, they definitely allow for a lot of complexity yeah, and a lot of problems. Well, the metaprogramming, right? Like that's uh, that's another, right? Like with Ruby, that becomes a huge, uh, another huge issue, right? The amount of complexity that you can load into any one line. Um, but like, is there- People make the are, same are mistakes with Java too, yeah. Like yeah. reflection yeah. with Java, yeah. But I, I also think though it, it harkens back to like um, we were doing a, a learning class on on formal modeling, mm -hmm. and um, you know one of the one of the things we worked through was like uh, Tamarin. So Tamarin is a prover that that focuses on cryptography, and the way that it works is it gives you some ideal. Like if you say I need to use AES in this mode, it gives you an idealized AES. Uh, implementation. So obviously there can be all sorts of bugs in your AES implementation, but if you wire things together incorrectly, you, you use AES CBC without some sort of HMAC, for example, um, there's all sorts of tampering risks there. And the, we need to move things to the level that actual developers work at rather than moving them to the level that, uh, that maybe like an implementation detail or, or whatnot, right? And we don't do that very frequently for our security tools. Most of the time, it's very low level. You have this character, which causes this problem, which does this thing rather than, oh, hey, you're using the entire wrong processing system for this. You know, <laughs> it's very whack-a-mole still, even how we describe things back to, to, to developers. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, like I'm hearkening back to this discussion that Ken and I had with uh, Manico, right? Like about the one true framework, as I like to call it, right? Like, oh, at some point we're going to have this great framework that you know eliminates all classes of vulnerabilities, or you know most. And while I agree, there's always those edge cases that developers come up with, um, where they feel like they need more power, they need the ability to execute some query in a different way. So they need raw access to the database, right? Like they bypass security fruit, security rails in order to accomplish their task. And so where does like, where does that fall down from developing a framework perspective from developing these tools perspective that, hey, we haven't given them full I, like we haven't given them everything that they, that we need. Um, and I don't know if that just goes back to like the whole contract idea, like the whole description idea of, Hey, you know, this has been formally defined enough that we give you the tools that are necessary to implement your, your code. Um, I, 
I, I honestly think that at some point, you, it, well, so it's like Greenspun's 10th rule, right? I don't know if you've ever heard of this. So you probably heard of it, but it was like 20 years ago. It's like any, <laughs> any large C or Fortran program uh, is a half-baked, bug-ridden, uh, like slow implementation of half of common Lisp. But when, whenever you have large programs, you literally are designing a framework, you're designing a language, like a DSL that you use. And I, I think we're not, the, the problem is we do these things, we understand them intrinsically, but we don't process and analyze systems at this level either. We, we just look at them at a very tactical level, even if the vulnerabilities are at a, a much higher level or something else they should be doing. Okay. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. It's, it's, I, think, I think a one true framework is, is not possible, but I do think one true framework within an organization is possible. I've seen it. There, there was a large hedge fund that several, several folks who've been on Absolute AppSec have worked on, and they had this framework. And every application, if you wanted to deviate from any single thing that they had, like security had, had blessed, you had to get an exception. And it was, on, but on the flip side, security would respond to this sorts of things like, oh, I need an escape hatch. And they would sit down and like, okay, let me understand your problem set. Let me sit down and, and see, okay, we can design this securely in this way. And maybe it's not as secure as the rest of the system, but we can add it so that from now on you do the standard thing for you. Right. Uh-huh. And, but here's the thing that costs money, that costs time, that costs people thinking about things. And, you know, it, it also still, uh, after many years, uh, people were like, yeah, but it's not the cool thing. So we don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. I was going to say, I, I don't, I don't know how long-term that would work. Um, it would cause a lot of friction and, you know, you're taking away people's, um, like for engineers, they're, I like to think of them as creative people, you know, and I don't, I think you're taking away some of that, that creativity and I don't, and that, that freedom of choice. And I think it's, it's not really a, a practical long-term option, no. honestly, but, um, you know, you're, again, I don't think a frame, I don't, I, I don't even think a framework can hundred percent solve even like a perfect framework because you just like, you just have, I'll give you an, for instance, um, I think it was maybe last week or the week before I was reviewing a pretty large size PR and, you know, individually, all the bits made a lot of sense. They all mm-hmm. made a lot of sense and everything looked right. And, um, it, you know, I, I kind of had to think, take a step back and talk to another team, actually two other team members about the context of the application. And we started, you know, thinking about it. We all, you know, reviewed all the code. Like I said, it all looked pretty good. We, we hopped off the call, you know, some, something didn't sit right. And, and I went back and realized, oh, wow, like we haven't actually like, it's difficult to think about and reason about, but there is actually an authorization bypass there. And here's why. And when, and again, when I, we had three very talented people looking at this and very experienced people. And again, looking at it, it all looked right. There was no one specific thing, like a method being called insecurely or anything like that. It was just a weird little, you had to connect a dot that you could maybe do this thing, then that thing. And then, oh, oh no, we now have an authorization bypass. It was not, it was non-trivial for sure. So like my point being that even if you had a perfect framework and you had hundred percent adoption within your organization and nobody complained that, you know, they're limiting their creativity and that like, also the upkeep on that framework. Oh and yeah. Also, again, this is like one of the things that we criticize is that like, 
if you build things internally and it's not open source or it's not built upon something that gets the whole world looking at it, you then have some level of obscurity and you have less eyes on the software to then potentially find issues that you thought were secure. But on top of all of that, you also may just have a situation where everything's developed right, you think, except for there's like some complexity that ends up being like some weird authorization bypass or logic flaw or whatever you want to call it. So yeah. it's like, yeah. it's, just, I mean, it's a hard one for sure. It's, it's hard too, because we don't. So honestly, the, the thing that you should focus on is if you're going to do like that deep formal specification, it should be on the framework side. So very often when you, when you read like the, the papers on these things, like if you read the W7 paper or something like that, um, that you want to prove a security kernel. You want to have some small portion of your code base that is formally defined, very well tested. And then the things that developers build on from there is, the, is, is a little bit less formally tested, a little bit less trusted. And then from there, you can, you can sort of like play whack-a-mole with things. But at least your security kernel is known to be good, is, is secure, has those sorts of things built into it. You know, that's where you would focus your efforts if you're doing these sorts of like higher level testing, right? That's where you would do the formal specification, the design by contract, those sorts of things, so that you had some assurance about your security kernel, your authentication system, your authorization system, those sorts of things. And then you would move everything else out to to developer code. But I, I, to your point, Ken, some of those can become very, very rigid. Like if you, if you use uh, macaroons, right, like hash-based... Uh, like unforgeable references, right? Like in, in object capability systems, OCAP systems can have formal proofs. They can have all sorts of things there, but they're also a little more exotic. They're a little yeah. different from, from what most people are used to thinking about. Uh, they also require a very specific style of thought. I now have to bless this reference and this reference is an unforgeable reference and I pass this back to a user and they or and the user could be some entity or anything in there. And it's it's a very different style of programming and a very different style of thinking about design, which we we don't do very frequently, you know? Have you messed at all uh, with uh, com- like, uh, what, what what is it called, Seth? The one I the, we were talking about, component-oriented web frameworks? Yes. Yeah. 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 Ken, you and I were talking about that when you were looking at uh, 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 like Apache Wicked or whatever there. Yes. Yeah. I've been trying to do some research there, trying to figure figure out how to, yeah, because it's really weird. Like you, you in some ways immediately kill off like a, a whole class of vulnerabilities like C-Surf and, and, and realistically, even to some degree, to some degree authorization flaws, because you have to have gone somewhere you were authorized to go for you to now reach the next place you want to go. Cause it's all right. based off of stateful tracking. So I couldn't just go to some URL that I wasn't told to go to because again, if I do my state doesn't match up and I get a big middle finger from the framework. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's pretty interesting to see there are ways that like talking again about categories of like, a web app, you know, like the framework level, language level, behavior level, whatever it is, like this is definitely one of those things where the framework itself is killing off whole classes of vulns, I think, you know, again, still early in the stages of research there, but um, it's just also, can I, some, can I go back to what you were saying? I wanted to like, make sure I understood that right. Are you to summarize for the layman, 
<laughs> uh, are you saying you draft requirement? You essentially have requirements, and you build off those. You build off the requirements, and then make sure that your specifications. Like I'm not sure if that's if you're using tooling or if you're just saying build your app according to these requirements and then do a review of those requirements. Like I, I guess that's the the connection there that I was trying to figure out. Is like, are you, are you asking about formal fact, specification? Ken? Yes. Like how how many, how in a practical sense would do I get started with that? Is what I'm trying to say. I guess. Wow, my back hurts. <laughs> so I can see maybe you're the spill the wi- the wheels are spinning there. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I was just gonna let Seth answer for <laughs> Oh, I no, I was specifically wondering from from your standpoint, like when it comes to these requirements, how do you build for those requirements? Like I, I'm assuming that's what you're saying when you're when you're building according to specifications. Like I honestly just I'm I'm not you know, familiar how that would look, I guess. Seth, if you want to start, man. Yeah, I I was trying to figure out if there was a good like resource that we could drop up there um, for people that are unfamiliar with it. Well, I I think probably the the easiest layman's term is if you if you were familiar with BDD frameworks like Qukes, yeah, probably the easiest way for for normal folks to get started with specification. Like, and I know BDD was a fad, and it, it came and kind of went, and and some people still do it. It's so it's super useful, but specifications or or test driven design yep. is like sort of an informal in, informal wow. specification system, right? So yeah. what. If if you think about BDD, you're like I'm ex- like the system you're testing be- for what it should do, yeah, exactly, right. So what specification is basically saying is I expect the system to do exactly this. Uh, it will use these components. It will do these things in this way, in this order, and then it restricts down the program domain that you have to look through as you're doing as you're testing. So why it's interesting to to Seth and I and, and other security researchers is that. You know, when you look at a, if if you look at a if you think about a program as a graph, you can give it an input, a string, an integer, whatever it is, and it does this thing. And if you give it another integer, and it does this other thing, right? Um, if you graph that out as a as a set of states, right, you're actually restricting down the the range of your function there. So mm-hmm. let's say if you take all integers, there's negative infinity all the way to infinity. But if you say actually the only states we care about are zero to ten. And our program will only run if you have a, an integer between zero and ten. That's the specification level that we're getting there, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's the sort of thing that we're, you you restrict down, and now you only have ten states to test rather than an infinite number of, of states to test. Does that make that's, sense? That's a, yeah, it does. There's a certain style of um, programming. It, um, it, I mean, it, it requires it you to scope. Oh, go yeah. ahead. Yeah, it just forces you to be extremely disciplined as well, right? Because it, there's there's none of this like I don't know what I'm getting. It's to have a formal specification. You know every possible input that's coming into a into a function, and then what the output should look like, right? Like if you don't, then you can't define what that state's going to look like. The, there's a super interesting programming language uh, made by Bertrand Meyer uh, called Eiffel, and Eiffel took some of the things that we learned from Algol and some of the things that we learned from Ada. And some of the things that Bertrand Meyer did for testing, 
right? And Bertrand Meyer was also the person who who uh, coined the phrase "designed by contract," if I recall correctly. And he he, it's basically baking whore logic or or like preconditions and postconditions into your programming language. But uh, what it became called was bondage and discipline programming because it was it forced you to be so strict and and you got punished by the compiler if you weren't strict there. So it very quickly became a trope like. Oh, this is difficult, painful types of programming that no one wants to do. Or even think about Haskell, right? Think about those those sorts of like newer, more exotic functional languages. Um, Haskell was always seen as like, oh, you fight with the compiler. And once you're done fighting with the compiler, uh, then your program works. Whereas people aren't really thinking like the, the compiler is sort of a prover that tells me some information about my program. And I can figure out if that's useful to me. And then I, I go back and forth and iterate quickly with the compiler as a tool. So it's, it's honestly a mindset view that, um, you know, ha is, is now coming to the fore, even though it's, it's been around forever, right? None of yeah. this is new. So, I mean, yeah, I, I feel like I've heard, I'm like trying to Google because I feel like I've heard arguments for and against building functions that only do one thing that only do one thing and all of your code is built in that in such a way and i and i cannot for the life of me recall what the the pros and the cons well i mean we're talking about the pros but i know there were cons and i don't remember what they were because like i'm trying to go into my memory from books i've read but i i uh i know that there is there are arguments both for and against like having such simple functions um I just can't remember what they so are. It's the, the, the old quip, for, I think from Tony Hoare, is that uh, you can write code such that there are no obvious bugs. You can write code so simply such that there are obviously no bugs, right? But writing code that simply means that you, you very often may have a very simple function, and then you call that function 10, 10 times in a code base when you maybe could just remove five of those calls to that very simple function if you just duplicated the code and made one function a little more complex. So it's like understanding the point in which- Right, uh, taking variable- yeah. Right. There's, yeah. there's an efficiency loss with a lot of these sorts of things, right? There's right. a reason why there's there's a compiler for C called CompCert. CompCert basically does a, a, it's like a more secure, verifiable build of C. It doesn't do a lot of the optimizations. It does not do a lot of the like, uh, you know, basically the the UB optimizations that you see in Clang and GCC because they can't be formally verified. So therefore, CompCert does not get you there, and you lose all these sorts of things once you're once you try to use a system that that does these sorts of things for you, like inlining. Right, inlining is non-trivial. If you look at how OCaml inlines, there's some weird heuristic like. If there's 30 operations in there, you can inline it. Otherwise, don't inline. And it's like, well, that's not super. Like there, there are, if you look at the OCaml verification papers, they they go towards inlining, like the inlining heuristics for a reason, you know? So it's a weird space. It's hard to do. And there's a lot of interesting stuff. And I think we're just now getting to the point where people realize that these are practically applicable. But you're right, Ken. There are trade-offs for all of these sorts of things. But I often wonder, like, do we actually want things to be faster all the time? Like maybe sometimes we should be okay with it being 10% slower if it's more secure. Well, and that, that was, that was my, that was going to be my next point is we've, we, we have this trade-off like 
for years and years, and especially like that that speed is the end all be all, right? And I, I feel like we're finally getting to that point that yeah, there is a little bit of trade off, um, especially when we get to the compiler level that security now is more important. So it's okay for us to be, you know, 5%, 10% slower, as long as we have provided some sort of formal specification, as long as we can prove that, you know, the input is secure, like we're going to, we're going to actually do some of that where we didn't before, because we just couldn't handle it. Right. I, and that, I mean, it, it goes back to the times of um, like rollout of HTTPS, right? Secure traffic. Like for years, we like we we didn't encrypt things because it took too long to encrypt things, right? Right. And what's well, you know yeah. unusable that we we didn't notice it as humans, then we started to do it all over the place. Yeah, and, and also a lot of those arguments were were based on things at the time and hardware. So, like, remember, we're all old enough to remember Hyphen. Remember Hyphen, the the the, uh, the crypto accelerator card that you could plug into PCI and it would like in, into a yep. PCI slot, not PCI process, uh, as in payment card industry, but like a PCI bus, and it yeah. would it would do all these crypto operations for you. And it's like, you know. Nowadays, we have like AES in, in CPUs, like many CPUs have AES, they might have SHA-1 or they might have some other hashing algorithms built into them. Um, and it's like, you know, uh, it, it, we're in a very different landscape than we were previously. I, I also posted in, in chat here, I posted some stuff to object capability, but there's also a programming language called EWI. Uh, it's a, an object, a distributed object capabilities programming language. And it has some interesting restrictions, but it, it's it's based on the model that you're talking about there, Ken. Where you like in order to in order to go to this thing, you have to have previously known it at all. And these things are not guessable. There's there's some sort of hash specification for it, etc. And that's what E is based on. Now there's other versions of E called Monty and others, but like this sort of system has been around for a long time. We've known that they break down confused deputy problems such as clickjacking, such as C-surf and those sorts of things. But we, we, haven't, we, we haven't used them because they're a little more exotic. They're a little different. E as a programming language looks a little like, you know, it, it, it has some Pascalisms and whatnot, you know. But we've had all the answers to these like Eros and LLNL and all those, like, all those operating systems They've been around since the like late '60s, early '70s. We know how to fix these things. We just don't, <laughs> like, you know. So it's funny. What's funny is it's 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 also not. I don't. I have found more often than not, it's not even a conversation of like when it, when it comes to like, um, you know, do, do we want to do we want to worry about computational performance and response time and all that? Or do we want to worry more about building some uh, new features that our clients are asking for? It's usually not, I don't think it's usually a question of like, well, we can give a trade-off for security. It will be more secure, but it'll be slower. Usually it's like, uh, well, it'll be a little bit slower, but we'll get those features knocked out of those customers have been asking for and said they're going to buy 1,000 licenses you know, mm -hmm. for this product. So that's what we are more concerned about. I just don't see usually, I don't usually ever see anybody put any thought into, unless it's like you guys mentioned encryption and, and um, uh, hashing. Yeah, that's one that there, <laughs> you, you, you know what cracks me up about that is that anytime that conversation happens, like, or oftentimes when you have uh, 
discussions with developers, like it always seems to go to crypto and it always seems to go to computational speed and performance issues with crypto. And like, it just cracks me up because like I've watched engineers have conversations and debates at length about cryptography and then go and write like insecure direct object, object reference the next day. And it's just like, yeah, we can get fancy, but we still have these stupid fucking problems that we have to solve. And it's like, you know, well, and, and crypto is one of those things too, uh, that, you know, I, I learned with Paul Carrer. He, he was the, uh, head of crypto at trail of bits. And now he's over at Oracle. Uh, Paul was on the podcast once before as well, but, yeah. um, I, you know, I learned a ton of stuff just, just from that, like just working around crypto and things like that. And it's, it's very funny though, because you see these exotic systems, right? Like we've seen like, uh, oblivious pseudo random function login systems or opaque, um, like, uh, you know, basically a, a way of building password authenticated key exchanges. Opaque is a, a new system for that. So I've seen all these sorts of things. And then you're looking at the code and it like, writes the key to the file system as 777. <laughs> like, you know, exactly. We have all yeah. the math, but then it's like, you know, wait, but anyone who has access to the server can change the key. <laughs> you know? Yeah, we have the technical we have the technical solutions to a lot of these problems. It's just the yeah, it's the humans. Well, per personally, I think the problem uh, or the real problem that belies this is that in this, the year of our Lord, 2021, <laughs> we're still deploying Linux and FreeBSD servers to do stuff, but now we deploy them into the cloud. Whereas I, I, I'm not trying to say we should all use a pass or anything like that, but it, I do think something like Mirage or something uh, like any of these sorts of uh, like exakernel style systems would be way better for security because we, we shouldn't be thinking about server security it's it's ridiculous that we're still deploying servers in 2021 well okay so that yeah that again that goes back to the whole like turing complete right do you really need yeah. a full operating system to do any of this no no you really don't right like there, there's other things that are out there that are probably a better solution but it's just where we're at yeah Mir mirage is super fascinating if you haven't seen it i'll, I'll post it into chat here but mirage is is a is an ocaml framework for basically making zen vms so basically you write some code it it compiles around it and then you get out a a, a binary that you can run in zen and it you can say whether or not you need a tcp ip stack you can say whether or not you need to have a file system attached to it right? If you have a web app that literally just processes some data and sends it back, you don't need to have file system access there. So just remove it, right? Yeah. But, yeah. and that's what you get with things like GVisor, bin CTR, all of these things are, are ways of, of handling this that we just don't, like we're, we're not using nearly as much as we could be. We, we shouldn't be deploying containers. We shouldn't be. Uh, oh, we lost him. Lost him. Uh -oh. I'm going to post that link for Mirage. Oh, you already did there. And I'll post it in our general Slack was, as well. That was weird. I don't know why, but I just got bumped. Uh, like, well, right just refreshed me, but whatever. Like, we don't, we really don't need to have these sorts of things um, there. Also, uh, to, to Derek uh, asking about the singleton pattern, um, yeah. I, I think the only, there, there's a, a very funny, uh, a very funny comment by uh, Runner Olafsson, one of the, like he, he does functional Scala 
he he wrote the book Functional Programming in Scala. He has a very funny quip where he's like, uh, "The gang of four is wrong. Um, you, you don't use any of those patterns, but the only pattern you do use is the interpreter pattern. That one is used everywhere. Like everything is the interpreter pattern if you look at it long enough." Um, but I don't think that there are like security patterns that are are done very frequently. We haven't done that level of analysis, even to what the gang of four has done. Although I obviously, I think the Langsec folks do look at those sorts of things. Um, everything is an interpreter. Everything is a parser. Those sorts of those sorts of discussions. Um, everything is a language described over it. But we we really haven't done that level of like pattern analysis there to to really understand things at that level. You know. <laughs> There's not yeah. going to be like a, an absolute appsec of four uh, style pattern book that we release that that's like what oh, I thought we were working on that. No. No, no. <laughs> you know, well, I'm sorry to I'm, I'm sorry to say it, but they, like it's very difficult because uh, like authorization is is unless you unless you release something like SAML and your pattern is SAML, uh, use SAML and make sure it's applied or use object capability models. And, and applied, it's very difficult to say, like, here's an authorization model that makes sense for everyone. Oh, yeah. Yep. It just you know? doesn't. Yeah. It, yeah, it doesn't fit quite in the same way. So you're right. Well, yeah. gentlemen, we've been going for a good hour, like, and all with, uh, you know, winging it, as you like to say. I love the wing it. I mean, that's the whole point. And what's funny is it all comes back to B PGP being problematic. Oh, it yeah. is. It is. And I, I mean, I knew we were going to, you know, get there somehow. Right. But yeah. Hey, um, yeah. And I know that we could continue on and on. Right. Like, but um, I don't, I don't know if there's, there's a way for us to really put a bow on it today as far as, you know, pointing people at something that would help them either get into formal specification or at least, I, like test-driven development, BDD, right? like that kind of stuff could be helpful. Um, I, yeah, but I, what do you think? I, I think hypothesis uh, is probably the, the best thing uh, that folks can start to look at. So hypothesis is a, is a uh, basically a property testing framework, right? It's similar to quick check if you've ever seen that in Haskell or uh, if you've seen that in other programming languages. But hypothesis is basically it, you write unit test looking uh, items and then hypothesis runs a fuzzer to see if it can ever if it can find uh, if it can find something that invalidates your assumptions there you also can use like libfuzzer libfuzzer is super good uh, gofuzz uh, both the google one and the the non google one depending on hyphen i never remember which one is which but basically uh, gofuzz and and uh, whatnot are there but for go there's also gopter I think looking at these sorts of things, understanding your program from from that level and, and actually driving specifications, even at a simple like this is what we expect it to do versus what it is doing, um, that's that's super huge. And that's where you would you would tie into like libgcrypt and whatnot there. So yeah. You know, like you, in, if you were fuzzing this sort of thing, uh, Bobby Tonic, who's been on the the podcast before, um, when we were, when we were talking about the Kubernetes work, uh, when when he and I would work together, one of the things he would always do is like, all right, let me find some GoFuzz tests that I can write. Let me uh, find some properties that I can invalidate, and I'm going to write a fuzzer that tries to break the format here uh, of it. And, and just go from there. Just I'm going to start with some simple, like, you know, first principles sort of things and go from there. 
Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, that's the thing is like, I go back to kind of the manual slash automated approach, right? And technically this is what we do when we're doing a web app test and we're using something like Burp Suite. Mm -hmm. It's like, I always end up falling back to using uh, the fuzzing tools that are built into that, right? Um, Once I understand kind of the structure of a, a request and a response, like doing the same thing if we're analyzing you know, libgpg or you know something else makes a lot of sense, um, but it does require you to put some time into it as well. Yeah, it's it's also fascinating because like Microsoft has released Wrestler, and there's a few other there's a few other systems that that they've released uh, recently. But basically, there are these sorts of frameworks that are out there for for uh, for building like a, a, an actual program analysis focused approach to to security testing as well. I I also wrote that um, I had a riff based on on what I was thinking once um, where it was like in security very frequently we try to find where there's a gap or we try to find a bug but we're not we're never like hey I use sputter to generate all of these things and these are all the test cases that passed. These are all the things that you expected it to do and then here's a list of things that are, are actually broken. We always just give them the broken and then we never talk about the larger program. Like, should these things even be occurring to begin with anyway? We don't know because we have no way of describing that or relaying that back to customers or or teams or anything there. So it's, it's a very fascinating space that we could be doing a lot more with, you know? Yep. Yep. Yeah. And I think we'll get there. Right. Well, good. Okay. So yeah, we have to get there and, and we will, right. Like it's just a, we're closer now than we ever have been, at least in my experience in the industry, right? Like we, we keep pushing, like new tools come out, new techniques and like all these different capabilities that exist out there. You may as well start using them to see how it applies. Yeah, the, the last one I would post there is that last link that I, I shared, which is the Microsoft REST API fuzz testing. They have a they have a whole system. It's written in F sharp. So of course, I would be interested in it. But it basically wraps a lot of these sorts of things. So you can do multiple strategies to attack your, your app from there. So yeah, fairly fascinating. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, we'll take a look at those if you're interested. Otherwise, you can find us online. We'll, we will post... Um, Logi's Twitter address and or jump into Absolute AppSec Slack if you want to you know, continue the conversation. Um, but we will have Stefan back on at some point, I'm sure, right, to, to talk even more. I think we're going to start doing regular check-ins with Stefan on stuff. Yes. So, um, He's just finding out about it right now. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. fine. Uh, like, you know, I'm always happy to come on and talk. You know me. I, I'm, I'm not someone who is uh, shy about talking. <laughs> we hadn't noticed there. <laughs> well, good. Um, Ken, anything so else? Up today? Nope. I just got to get going. So thank you so much guys. And those yeah. watch watching the stream. Okay. All right. We'll catch right. everybody next week. Join us then. Thanks everyone. Right. Later. <laughs>